welcome to Sidactic Residency Edition. Today is July 18th, 2023, and I am Dr. O'Leary, a fourth-year psychiatry resident in the National Capital Region. This episode is a continuation of a series I started on the prefrontal cortex. You can go back two episodes if you want to start from the beginning, which I recommend. In the last episode, I spent probably too much time talking about the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Today, I'm sliding down under the front part of the brain to consider the orbital frontal cortex. That part of the brain just right above and a little behind your eyes. It is much smaller than the lateral gyri on the prefrontal cortex, but it appears to be superior at generating probabilities in our brain when we need to consider different options that can result in different rewards or um, bad outcomes at what they call aversive stimuli. The most basic kinds of rewards that neuroscientists can study are food, because lab animals will respond to those, and while the orbital frontal cortex is definitely intimately related to food, in humans, at least, its powers of prognostication are likely much more generalized. Let's get started. Remember when I mentioned that the cortex tends to have six layers of cells. Each layer has its own afferents and efferents. These are neurons that send information into and out of each layer. Each layer also has a number of supporting cells that may contain interneurons that can act to either inhibit or excite other neurons within that layer or neurons within other layers. There are generally two granular layers. Um, they're called the external and internal internal granular layers because of their relative locations. But within the orbitofrontal cortex, there is a gradient where the more posterior cortex is really generally lacking layer four, the internal granular layer, which, when it is present, would contain neurons from both the thalamus and from other cortical regions uh, that are in the same hemisphere. This doesn't mean that the posterior regions of the orbitofrontal cortex are entirely disconnected from other cortical or thalamic regions. That, that happens in other cell layers. It's just relatively uh, less connected compared with the more anterior regions of the orbitofrontal cortex. So for the purpose of this discussion, I guess what I just told you is really more of a fun fact than anything else, because I don't know how to relate it to what I'm going to say after this. But feel free to use uh, the fact that the posterior part of the orbitofrontal cortex lacks layer four to impress your friends at your next dinner party. Just posterior to the orbitofrontal cortex are the primary olfactory and gustatory regions, which communicate directly with the posterior orbital frontal cortex. The insula is also posterior to the orbital frontal cortex and also communicates directly with it. 
The posterior orbitofrontal cortex receives somatosensory information, especially from like the mouth and the hands, and viscerosensory information, including satiation signals. It seems to be involved a lot with food and eating behaviors. It processes information and then communicates this information forward to the more anterior regions of the orbitofrontal cortex, where information is processed again and shared with the medial prefrontal cortex and other subcortical regions in the striatum, the thalamus, the medial temporal lobe, the hypothalamus, and the brainstem. The orbitofrontal cortex does not have significant communication directly with the motor or supplementary motor cortex, like the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex does. It still has its own cortico-striatal palatothalamocortical loop, similar to that of the motor system, but it's not directly involved in the motor system. It also communicates back and forth a lot with the medial temporal lobe structures like the amygdala, the hippocampus, the parahippocampal regions, and the temporal pole. Like its neighbor, the medial prefrontal cortex, the orbitofrontal cortex also has, or is connected to, the hypothalamus and the periaqueductal gray matter, the ventral tegmental area, and the raphi nuclei but these projections are relatively weak compared to those of the medial prefrontal cortex. The orbitofrontal cortex seems really well suited to process information regarding food, which is one of the primary kind of rewards or things that we would have goal-directed behaviors toward. It appears to be able to help determine what a potential food source is, uh, whether the food is attractive or aversive, and what the reward potential is for that food c compared to other available foods. Donuts, yum, eat, steamed broccoli, maybe later. When looking deeper into the orbitofrontal cortex, I ran across a paper titled what the orbitofrontal cortex does not do from Nature Neuroscience in May of 2015. The report said that researchers kind of relying on a deluge of small studies with really limited data sets have, quote, implicated the orbitofrontal cortex in nearly every function known to cognitive neuroscience and in most neuropsychiatric diseases, unquote. While reading this paper, it was hard for me to understand a lot of it, but I, I do think I understood something. For example, the orbital frontal cortex has a role to play in assigning value or significance to certain kinds of rewards, and then making choices based on what is the highest reward. Um, it basically sets a priority. When the orbital frontal cortex is damaged, then the brain can have some difficulty in tasks, especially when like rules are changed or reversed after they were learned or reinforced. Uh, for example, like you have an animal uh, pick a certain image and that results in the reward, and then you uh, have another image where there is no reward or a lesser reward. 
and then you switch those images. It seems like damage to the orbital frontal cortex can make it difficult for the animal to learn the new rule. It was originally thought that the orbital frontal cortex is involved in inhibiting learned or impulsive reward-seeking behaviors because damage to this area can result in subjects kind of appearing to get stuck on or perseverating on that wrong choice when the reward is switched. There are two situations in which choices between possible rewards can arise. They can arise either de novo, when someone or something is first learning about the reward, and they can arise kind of ex post facto when someone already has experience with the rewarding stimuli and a memory of it. If the orbital frontal cortex is damaged and you change the rules, then it has a hard time learning the new rule and the brain defaults to a previously learned rule. The orbital frontal cortex then is not involved really in inhibiting erroneous reward-seeking behavior, but in actually directing it in a certain way. There is a subtle difference, and it's an important one. So I'll say it again. The orbital frontal cortex is probably not involved in inhibiting erroneous reward-seeking behavior, but instead in directing it toward something else. Another thing that the orbital frontal cortex might do is to help with kind of reward prediction errors. Once an expected reward has been encoded or learned, the orbital frontal cortex may help to process what to do when that reward is expected but does not materialize. The authors of the paper I mentioned um, before feel like it is not likely that the orbital frontal cortex actually generates the error signals themselves but instead helps to calculate some kind of value for the error signal. Um, and the error signals themselves are most likely sent from dopamine neurons in the brainstem to the orbitofrontal cortex. They call this credit assignment, where the orbitofrontal cortex can help assign credit for an error, which I think means it assigns it a proximate cause. Another way that they propose that the orbital frontal cortex works in the brain is as part of kind of a larger cognitive map where it participates in associating things like the identity of an item with some kind of value, either one that it determines de novo or one that already exists. It is queried by other regions of the brain um, and they work together to really try to predict the most likely outcome given that map and any um, de novo predictions it needs to create. If the orbital frontal cortex is damaged, it could make like access to updating this map impossible. What more interests me as a psychiatrist is not really whether the orbital frontal cortex produces prediction errors itself or merely uh, processes ones that were sent uh, from somewhere else. Um, I wonder why people with orbital frontal cortex legions can become uh, apparently impulsive or impertinent, inappropriate, um, or even violent. This suggests that the role of the orbitofrontal cortex is inhibitory, 
I mean, it has been reported that it inhibits affective or impulsive responses. However, another explanation that I mentioned before is, is not that it inhibits responses, but instead that it directs someone to a more rewarding or better response. This is called goal-directed behavior. Without goal-directed behavior, we're basically at the mercy of either like previously learned or more basic impulses and our affective states. There is then a difference between like inhibition of impulses, which would merely stop a person from doing something, and replacing that impulse with a more rewarding or better option. There's increasing evidence that the orbitofrontal cortex is more concerned with directing than with inhibiting behaviors. There are interesting experiments that might help shed some light on this. The orbitofrontal cortex helps to process, say, our feelings of fullness or satiation. Satiation, I have a really hard time with that word, may be just feeling full, you know, like you've had enough to eat, or it could just be that you've had enough of one particular thing, although you're not entirely full. Um, No more donuts, please. I might try that broccoli now. If we've been eating a single thing for a long time, our body will generally tell us at some point that we've had enough of that, and it will devalue that particular food in the present. If we're then presented with two foods and we like them equally, one being the food that we were already eating and the other being a new food, then most normal people will choose the new food. However, people and animals with orbitofrontal cortex damage treat each choice like it's equivalent in value. They don't switch to the other one, necessarily. They, they don't lack the ability to suppress or to inhibit eating that same food. What they lack is the ability to update their goal-directed behavior based on new information. Some have labeled the orbitofrontal cortex as the economic center of the brain, particularly adept at assessing and grading the value of different options and the costs associated with each, and then passing that information forward. Remember, the orbitofrontal cortex is not directly connected to like the supplementary motor cortex or the motor cortex. It, it doesn't itself direct behaviors. However, it is communicating with the ventral striatum, which contains the nucleus accumbens, telling it the results of any of the calculations. The orbital frontal cortex then is passing information regarding the relative value of different behavioral choices to the areas of the brain that can motivate us to do something about it. A damaged orbital frontal cortex can result in um, deficiency in like properly valued goal-directed behaviors. Conversely, an overactive orbitofrontal cortex is associated with excessive goal-directed behavior, Um, and this is probably most obvious in the form of obsessive-compulsive disorder. This fits more nicely with the idea that the orbitofrontal cortex is more goal-directed than inhibitory, because if it were inhibitory, then when it was overactive, This would result in more inhibition, not in more compulsion. 
People with OCD wish they were able to inhibit their compulsions, but they just cannot. They are, in a way, stuck in a goal-directed pathway that they cannot extricate themselves from. It's not an impulse. It's a compulsion. Patients with behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia have uh, often degenerating orbitofrontal cortex. And they also present with repetitive motor acts or like vocalizations, like they might say uh, something over and over and over again for no apparent reason. Um, in one study, the kinds of acts that generally were associated with OCD, say like checking or cleaning, counting, ordering, were really infrequent compared to um, things that are more uh, impulsive or perseverative. Patients demonstrated palilalia, echolalia, repeating non-word sounds, tapping, pacing, picking, among other things, but these were not really goal-directed behaviors. Hoarding something was something that people with frontotemporal dementia did frequently, but although hoarding is included in the OCD chapter in the DSM, it can really result from either compulsive or impulsive behaviors. Uh, you hoard when you don't get rid of things you collect, and there could be multiple reasons you collect things, and those could be compulsively or impulsively. Just because an act is repetitive doesn't necessarily make it a compulsion. In humans especially, the value of a certain goal-directed or aversion-avoidant behavior is highly modulated by social context. For example, I am much more highly motivated to put on clothes when I leave the house than when I merely go downstairs to get something out of the refrigerator. I'm also going to remain seated during a talk even though I feel like a moderate urge to urinate uh, because I want to avoid maybe being seen leaving, um, or I'm just interested in the topic and don't want to miss anything. It is not the orbitofrontal cortex that is inhibiting my urge to get up. Instead, it's helping to weigh the different options and put them in a context in order to determine which action is the most desirable, would have the most benefit, is the most rewarding Inhibition of the impulse to urinate is likely taken care of by another part of the brain, potentially like the right dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. What the orbitofrontal cortex did was to motivate me to remain seated. How does this part of the brain that when hypoactive results in impulsive acts and when overactive results in compulsive acts um, make these decisions? How, how does it make these value-based decisions? When we're perceiving something that our brain can like easily compare with something else, um, like you, you can see two fruits sitting on a table, uh, there's often a process called mutual inhibition happening. We have different populations of neurons that respond to different stimuli, and in turn, they try to inhibit the other neurons. 
it's really a simple balancing act um, where the population of neurons with the most stimulation kind of overpowers the others and then a choice is made. The orbital frontal cortex appears to lack these kinds of neurons. It's not doing mutual inhibition. The same neurons generally fire for similar choices, so it that actually can't be the way it makes the decisions because it's using the same neurons when it's considering the different choices. It is suspected that in order to make a decision, the orbital frontal cortex has to do a juggling act where it calculates or accesses an already known value, stores it in working memory, considers another value, and then stores it in working memory, and so on. The orbital frontal cortex is obligated to kind of change its attention back and forth between the different options. It's not really considering them at the same time. So this is a relatively slow process compared to mutual inhibition, but it allows for much richer data and for kind of updating the final values of those calculations over and over again when you have more or collateral information, like when you think about the risk or the cost not just the reward. The central or kind of medial um, orbital frontal cortex appears kind of more involved in coding working memory while this is happening and updating the probabilistic outcomes, while the more lateral areas appear to be doing more of the calculations themselves. Some suggest that the orbital frontal cortex is working with the ventral medial prefrontal cortex to create the cognitive map that I mentioned earlier, similar to how the hippocampus has neurons that correlate with physical space. But instead of being correlated with physical space, this cognitive map here would be associated with goals and expected outcomes. It would be very costly for the brain to just constantly recalculate the probabilities of reward and success every time an option is presented. Having a map like this would allow for kind of fast checking by those dopamine neurons in the midbrain when they're scanning for mismatch and sending out error signals. The orbital frontal cortex would already have information that they could use to process that signal. But no one is quite sure if this map actually exists. It's hard to know from lesions in humans what the particular function of the human orbital frontal cortex is because the, the lesions that humans experience are usually due to things like surgeries or tumors or trauma or strokes. Um, and the, those are not necessarily very precisely or exclusively related to the orbital frontal cortex. It could be that much of the affective changes that occur when the orbital frontal cortex is damaged are actually related to damage to like white matter tracts that are near it instead of the cortex itself. Or it could be because uh, there are areas within the ventromedial prefrontal cortex um, or the orbitomedial prefrontal cortex that are damaged. What increasingly does appear to be the case is that damage to this area does not actually release a person from some kind of inhibition, but instead it releases them from complex goal-directed behaviors leaving them with less ability to weigh the choices. 
During compulsive behaviors, when this area is overactive instead of underactive, and spending excessive amounts of time maybe calculating and recalculating reward, um, people end up with this sense of dissatisfaction. They keep doing the same thing, but they can't feel like they've accomplished anything. This far, I have discussed the orbitofrontal cortex and the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. My series on the prefrontal cortex, then, is nearing an end. In the next episode, I will complete the series by discussing the medial prefrontal cortex, and that's an area of the brain that appears to give a high level of control to things like autonomic and emotional states. It gives a lot of attention to social information, and it likely even helps to provide us with our sense of self. Thank you for listening. I am Dr. O'Leary, and this has been an episode of Sidactic Residency Edition.